Well, we are continuing in uh, the life of Christ, and last, well, last time we met, not last week, but the week before, we, we, looked, we started looking at some of John, the, the Gospel of John, because it's in the Gospel of John that we get an early glimpse at Christ's ministry, some things in there that are not in any of the other Gospels. Uh, we looked at the initial calling of uh, his disciples, some of his disciples, uh, either four or five, depending on how you interpret who's being referred to as the one not mentioned. But, um, yeah, we spent a lot of time there, uh, you know, having the, seeing the early disciples say, come, come and see. Uh, and now we're going to see. We're going to see some of that. Today we're going to look at uh, what is recorded as Christ's first miracle. And it's a passage uh, that's probably familiar to all of us. You know, the water, the miracle of turning the water to wine at the, the wedding feast in Cana. And we're going to have a take a look at that. Uh, this is not many Baptists' favorite passage, uh, turning it into wine here, but uh, we're going to we're going to look at it now. Before we jump before we jump into the actual into this actual lesson itself, I want to pause for a minute and just discuss the notion of miracles, because uh, we're about to look at what is recorded as Jesus' first miracle. Um, we need to pause and remind ourselves there's a lot of people who think we're crazy uh, for believing these things. Okay? And I'm going to teach it as if this really happened, okay? because I believe it really did. And I think all of us in here are probably of that persuasion as well. But know that uh, a lot of folks think the idea of believing in these sort of, what they would say are just silly, superstitious sort of stories is what actually marks Christianity as false. So we need to kind of pause for a second and, and address this whole idea of miracles. Um, and it was in the West, in the modern West, of course, it was with the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution that a lot of people started casting doubt on these stories. It's not that people before that didn't expect nature just to behave as nature and were looking for miracles everywhere. It's, that's not what people were doing. It's just that uh, with our growing up, if you want to think of it that way, as what a lot of people would say, as a culture, we, we're, people were embarrassed suddenly by these stories. And a lot of people still are. And a lot of people try to find ways to get rid of these stories. Thomas Jefferson, uh, probably the poster child for American deism uh, basically put out, he put out a version of the Gospels in which he just cut out anything that smacked of the miraculous. That was where the Jefferson Gospels. So, oh, yes? That book was actually written to be distributed to the Native Americans. Mm. And so, in looking into that, he actually thought that the Native Americans wouldn't have a, a contextual understanding of those miracles. So that book was actually written with the purpose of being sent out to, to Native Americans. To Interesting. Native Americans. I've not heard that. But still, that's a presumption on his part. Well, and, and, and I don't think any, anyone would deny, though, that Jefferson was card-carrying deist in that sense. Well, he, was, he was influenced heavily by the primitive Methodist who had a big gathering at Charlottesville, Virginia. Primitive Methodists only believed in the four Gospels, basically. They so, like the Sadducees yeah, they, they just the <laughs> of the New Testament. Yeah. They thought everything else was kind of. Bogus. Interesting. 
Hmm. Then heard that. Well, we are in the we live in the age of having to deal with this out this aftermath of no belief in the supernatural. If it smacks of the supernatural, it must therefore be false. So as we approach these things, in fact, I would say that most of us aren't walking around looking for miracles to happen. I don't think any of us are walking around daily waiting for miracles. We, we live our lives, you know, depending on the reliability of the cause and effect understanding of, of nature. So, you know, often what we will say is a miracle, we'll look back at circumstances and say, well, that was a miracle, but we're not going around looking necessarily for miracles. However, we need to pause. The reason I wanted to bring this up is because the rejection of miracles is not because someone is a scientist or someone believes in science. It has to do with your preconception, your preconceived notions of, of, of basically a philosophical assumption that they don't or can't happen because that's what, where it starts. That's why two people, let's say you and then one of your friends who perhaps is not a believer, can, can look at same circumstances and one would, would attribute it to a miracle and someone else would say, well, no, there's gotta be another explanation. Let's say someone in your family is ill or a friend is ill and the doctors have said this is terminal, they're not gonna make it. And, and everyone knows this is, this is where it's coming and, People pray and suddenly, boom, someone's healed and doctors can't explain it. There's no, no explanation for it. And a lot of you probably have some of those stories. Because of, let's say, your friend's preconceived understanding that they cannot happen, no, there's no evidence that's going to make them think that this actually took place. They're still going to say, well, there has to be a reason. There has to be an explanation. So it's a worldview commitment up front that says there cannot be miracles. There's no reason if there, if, you know, there's no reason, even though there is a God who is in charge, who's basically let the universe run according to how he has set it up, that he can't intervene. It's only your assumption that that can't happen that would make you say there can be no miracles. So, we are left as a people that are, that are seen as sort of, hmm, how can an educated person believe these things? Well, an educated person can believe these things if your worldview allows for an open cosmos in which God can and does act in ways that often run counter to our expectations. And John actually calls them signs. They're not just there for the heck of it. They're there to point to larger truths. So when we deal with these stories of miracles, know that uh, we're seen kind of backwards every now and then for, for believing these things. And fellow backwardsians, backwardsians, I don't know what, whatever the word would be, uh, here we go. All right, so that's just a little bit of, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed by these things. And you don't have to necessarily reject things that science understands. They're not mutually exclusive, is what I'm trying to help you understand. So any questions? Any, just a little bit of, yeah. Uh, to further go along with what you're saying, miracles are basically one-time events. And science <coughs> evaluates by doing things that are repeated so they can be repeated.
repeatedly evaluated in a laboratory or using controlled trials. But our life is full, our world is full of one-time events. The Big Bang, the, the birth <coughs> of a child. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are lots of children born, but that child is only born once. And so the, 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 the scientists who say there's no miracles <coughs> have a false premise that, that there's only one way to have an explanation. Right. And, and that you, has to have a material cause. Yeah. And, and there are material causes, but you know, the causer is not material, but spirit. Right. But, but again, that's part of the false premise, and so one way to discuss it is about this false premise. Because there are many things that happen on a one-time basis, and you cannot do a scientific experiment to repeatedly confirm it. Correct. Yeah, science, of course, studies nature. Hence, the supernatural is outside the realm of the study of nature. So don't be afraid of science, but don't allow science, is what we're hearing here, to necessarily draw conclusions about things that's outside its purview. Uh, suppose that science came up with an explanation of every physical action that there is in the universe. The question of why there is a universe would still remain unanswered. In other words, science studies nature, we're dealing with the supernatural, natural. So it's outside its purview in that sense. So don't be afraid of either one. All right. Well, here we go. Last, when we left off, uh, Jesus had just told Nathaniel, uh, you believe because I said I saw you under a fig tree? You wait. You're going to see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending. You're going to see greater things than this. And we're about to see one of those greater things. And what John says is this is the first of the signs. He uses the word sign. It's where we get our term semiotics in the Greek. That which points towards something else. So John has a reason for bringing up the ones he brings up. And he's the only one to bring up, excuse me, this particular miracle. And I love that it's, it's at a wedding, right, a, a party. Um, not that Jesus is there to, you know, to be the ultimate you know, party hound. That's not the, the point. But I love that that's where it takes place, especially that people that think that Jesus is some sort of you know, ascetic and he's, not, and he's no fun and he's not, you know, he would never laugh and he wouldn't do any of these things. Well, he's at a feast. He's at a wedding feast. And this is, you know, and he's, his first miracle has to do with wine. So I think that's an affirmation of our own embodied existence, our own joy at being who we are and gathering together and, and, and in participating in festival, you know, festive events and all those things. You know, I always tell people that when people feel guilty about Christmas, there are some things perhaps about Christmas that we, can, we should critique about a lot of the commercialization. But no one should really out-Christmas us. We should be the, the ones on the block that people know, wow, they, they really celebrate. You know, we shouldn't be, you know, it's, it's, it's always a bummer when, you know, people say, well, in a, in a, in a quite a hushed tone, almost judgmental, well, let's not forget the true meaning of Christmas. Well, like if that's a downer, you know. I said, we are celebrating the true meaning of Christmas, you know, embodied existence. I mean, this is cool. Um, so this story is cool. Uh, going back to the whole miracle thing, 
right off the bat, just know that there are people who will discount this as, well, this has to be made up. It has to be made up, one, because it's a miracle. You can't have miracles. Two, so that in order to kind of explain it, some would say, well, you know, here's what happened. When, when Jesus, Jesus actually just served water as a joke. You think, what? So yeah, he just served the water kind of like as a joke, and then the steward was in on it with a, a kind of a little jest saying, oh, yeah, you saved the best one until now, right? You know, like, oh, the best, you know, meaning the water, kind of a little joke. And speculation is that perhaps one of the, the servants in passing who didn't know what was going on heard that, and thus the legend was born that water was turned to wine. But in actuality, it was all just a big joke. So that's one of the possible ways people try to get around all of this, just so you're, you're aware. All right, well, I've divided into two sections. First, kind of the subtle opening here, the st stage is set, and then the surprise outcome of how, how this all works out. It's a short passage, but there's a lot packed in there. We'll, we'll, we'll address all that, look at that. So someone read, first of all, verses 1 through 5. Jay, you wake? All right. All right. One through five, I was going to read one through twelve. Okay. No, just through five. All right. On the third day, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples also been invited to the, to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that of, to you and to me? My hour is, is, is not yet come. His mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. All right. Thank you, sir. Okay. Yep, you did great. Do whatever he says. If, if nothing else, this is a great story of when Jesus is present and people do what he says, there's transformation. If only churches would learn that. If we would just, you know, Jesus is present. If we would just do what he says, there will be change. Things will happen. Um, but there's more going on here, of course, than that. Three days later. Three days later from what? Well, from when Nathaniel met, they traveled to Cana. Remember, Nathaniel is from Cana. John mentions that later. Cana of Galilee. There were other Canas. Uh, and even this one, there's still speculation as to where it is. It's not been excavated. In fact, most of the sites in the Middle East have yet to be excavated, uh, which is intriguing. Uh, it's just the whole place is just, is just built over ruins everywhere. Well, it's where Nathaniel is from, and we're told that they go to a wedding. So right away, we're not told enough details. We want more details. Whose wedding is it? You know, uh, who was invited? Why is Mary there? Why is Jesus invited? All those questions. All of which, of course, because we want to know. But we're not told those. The point is the sign itself. But, you know, just by way of speculation, if Nathaniel's from there, he may have been the one who was invited. That may have been the reason they went. Why was Mary there? Well, it appears because she's the one who brings up that there's no wine, that the wine has run out that she may have been helping. She's there as either a friend of the family or is even serving as one of the servants to help. Now, not you know, like the caterer, if you want to, you know, not the caterer, but one of the servants. So we're not told, why is Jesus there? Well, he's with Nathaniel. Perhaps that's why Nathaniel brought his friends 
So we don't know who all was invited or why, but Jesus is there. There's some who say that maybe Nathaniel and Jesus, Jesus and his buddies weren't invited. They kind of invited themselves, and that's why the wine ran out. I've actually heard that. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? Isn't that something? That she knew he, she doesn't, she goes right to him. Exactly. But it's a real mother-son moment because she tells him what she wants him to do. I mean, they're out of wine. She's expecting him to take care of it. And he says, no, no. And she goes straight ahead, assuming her son's going to do what she <laughs> funny because Eugene Peterson would say no. <laughs> His translation is pretty harsh. Um, and, 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 oh yes, I'm sorry. No, but the follow-on right here for just in a few words was that the time wasn't right. The wording may be different. Mm -hmm. Jesus is asking you to do something ahead of the time being right. And that just has so many questions. That's just novels and volumes of theology. Yeah, it sounds like the Sounds like the temptation almost in the wilderness, you know, his temptations to do things, but in the wrong time and in the wrong way. Well, you've all hit on exactly what, oh, we're not done, yes. Very good. Which all brings us to why I put subtle opening. <laughs> because there's a lot of ink spilled on, well, what is exactly the nature of what he says to her? Um, because depending on your translation, it can come across a lot of different ways. Now, we do know she comes to him about the wine having run out. Now, to us, that's just, oh, bummer. Go down to the store and get some more kind of thing. Um, but this is a big faux pas, uh, for these wedding feasts that would last a week and it was an obligation for you to provide there are even there are even some places some instances where there was precedent for you could actually bring legal action <laughs> against people for for not having <coughs> taken the right steps in these kind of areas um, <laughs> so this and it's a bad omen for the couple too you know it was considered oh man you're just starting off on the wrong foot in other words, this is, a, this is a bigger deal than in our day. Yes? This is a sh uh, an honor-shame culture, which is what we've been working with in Asia. So the shame of not having enough wine would have totally destroyed the family. Yeah, very good. The, the bride and the groom and all the relatives. Yeah, honor-shame culture. Good, yeah. So a little different from what we expect. Well... She goes to Jesus, and that's why people say, well, why would Mary do this? Uh, Calvin, interestingly, uh, John Calvin, uh, his, his commentary on this is that she was hoping that Jesus would go say a few godly words to these people to kind of, 
you know, just kind of settle things down and maybe save face for the bridegroom. Um, but I think there's more going on here than that. And if she is actually helping with the wedding and she knows her son's there, and we, we remember that she's pondered all these things in her heart about who her son is. She may not understand the full ramifications, but she knows, as we already heard, that he can do something. And it's because of that now that we have this interesting interchange. You said the NIV has the dear woman. Um, I've read some translations, too, that said, you know, tried to get that same thing across, only more, you know, sort of courtly and have lady. Uh, but the actual term is just woman. Just, that's, it. that's all that's there. Um, and I think the NIV tries to help us to know that it probably wasn't just a sharp rebuke. Woman! It wasn't that, uh, but more of just a general address that only Jesus uses. Now, he, he does the same thing from the cross. He doesn't say mother. He, when he sees her and when he hands her over to John, he, he says woman. And he addresses other women just as woman. So uh, people look in vain at other literature to see, well, are there other instances of, of people just saying that? And there's not. It appears that Jesus does this. And it's his mom, which also shows that there is a shift of relationship happening here. That the chime of affirmation. Yes. This is broker. He's got to go deal with that right now. All right. That there's a change of relationship happening. As we've all kind of dealt with this whole mother, you know, son thing. Well, that's changed. It's, it's as if she can no longer presume upon that relationship anymore. And then he says this odd thing of the, the just quite linearly translated is, what to me and to you? <laughs> what to me and to you is, is how that reads, just quite literally straightforward in the Greek. And it's both a Greek and Hebrew idiom that, depending on context, is how that comes across. Because uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there are several instances where that's translated with more of, of, a, of a harshness of just, don't bother me, basically. Just, just don't bother. That's no, okay. Yes, sir. This is his coming out party. This is his signification as you're the man, maybe even the man of the house if Joseph is no longer there. And she defers to him. In, in that instance, yes, yeah, there is a definite understanding that he, he will be able to do something. And by the way, you mentioned Joseph, and folk, folks have asked, why is he not around? Speculation is that perhaps by this time, Joseph has passed away. Just... Just, and there's no confirmation of that. It's just that no one mentions him from here on out. He's not mentioned except as Jesus as his son. But him as an active, in an active role is no longer theirs. But we don't know. Um, so in the Old Testament, in some, several instances, it can be translated as, you know, don't bother me. This is the exact same phrase, by the way, in the Greek, in Mark, where the demoniacs address Jesus. It's the exact same phrase in the Greek. And in that, 
In that sense, it's what, um, what have we in common with you? That's, that's how we translate it there with the demons through the demoniacs addressing Jesus. But in the Greek, it's the exact same. What have we to do with you? Here, of course, then we have to ask, well, what is, what is he saying? Because there's a lot of speculation, and all of our translations go with an angle of some sort. So it is still sort of subtle, is why I have that. There's this subtle sort of thing that's going on where we have to try to decide, well, what is exactly the import of what he's saying? Now, taking everything that we've been saying and kind of grouping it and pushing it into, into one sort of interpretation, it would, it would be something of, along the lines of, you know, my, what I'm doing and what you're asking are, are two different things. That the time's not yet come. You don't understand the full time of what I am about. Interestingly, Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, before facing, when facing crucifixion, he says, the hour is now come. And here he says, the hour has not yet come. In other words, he, there's, he's, he recognizes there's more of who he is and what he's doing than just to meet this physical need to avoid this sort of social shame. But at the same token, Mary doesn't take it as a rebuke. I don't think we should see it as a, just a sharp rebuke because it doesn't say, and, there she, and she slunk away. Um, as we've already heard, she knows that whatever he is saying, and I'm sure she would know more than we do, she knows something will happen. Uh, Part of me wants to translate it as, woman, I've got this. Almost. Not in the way you think, but I've got this. But again, it's it's just an idiomatic phrase that we're left to have to try to... All of us, though, recognize that he's saying, calm down. When I told you about Peterson, Eugene Peterson in the message, his paraphrase is, I wrote it down somewhere, oh, here it is. Is that any of your business, any of our business, mother, yours or mine? This isn't my time, don't push me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Jesus said, don't push me, woman. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Now, Peterson, of course, again, is, is writing to a particular audience as a paraphrase, but So you get to see the full range of where people land on this. But I think what we do recognize is Mary, in however much she understands her son's role, does know he is equal to it, and he will do something. Now, because it's a sign, there is a a real, literal, surprise sort of outcome, real wine. But because it's a sign, it's pointing to a lot of things. Obviously, there's a lot that's happening here that it can point to. And there's been a lot of, a lot of folks write quite a bit about that. But let's hear what does happen. Yes, sir. This uh, quote of Mary was the last recorded quotation of Mary in the Bible. And I think it's really significant that he says, she says, do whatever Jesus tells mm. you to do. <laughs> and she should know. Yeah, that's great. I, the last recorded words of Mary in the Gospels. That's great. Do what he says to do. Awesome. 
Not many mothers will say that. There's never a last word. Right. I'll read. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we're going to read. Interesting, I just thought, you know, that's also at the Transfiguration. We're told, yeah, do what he says. Yeah. Go for it. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guest had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. All right. Awesome stuff. This is great. All right. So whatever he says, do. Now, why would she says that, of course, because he's not, he's not the, the master of the banquet. He's not there as a servant. He's a guest. So naturally, she would say, now, do what he says. And because she probably understands whatever he says may sound strange to you, just do it. So they do. And we're given these details. Details that we don't necessarily want, we're given. The details we want, we're not given. And here's the details. We're told how many stone water pots there are. And we're told how much they hold. Obviously, that's significant because of the opulence, the overflow of this gift, of what he's about to do. And these stone water pots... Um, were used for purification. You'd have a lot of water on hand in these pots because for purification for the feast, for the banquet, to wash hands and to wash utensils. There was the ceremonial washing before doing any of this. Hence, they're empty. They've been used for these very purposes. So it's not unusual to have these around. And we're told that um, if you have, King James is great. It says firkins, two to three firkins each. That's so, you know, we don't use the word firkin anymore. We don't have firkins. Uh, if you're in England, you would. Um, 20 to 30 gallons, so two to three firkins each. The actual term is uh, metritai. A measure, metritai was actually a term, and that was about 10 gallons. So hence, we have the 20 to 30 gallons. There's six of them, 120 to 180 gallons, somewhere in that nature. Now, if we did that today with pouring out four-ounce four ounce pours, of wine. That's 2,000 glasses of wine, somewhere along that. Um, but remember, too, that um, people never, they didn't really drink the wine undiluted. They would dilute it. So we're talking even more. So anyway, a lot is what we're supposed to get from that. So use the word firkin at some point this week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there were stone jars. So. A lot of water. Yes? They also used 
because they were for purification purposes, they used living water. And as a fresh water that was flowing, they wouldn't put any old water in there. Yeah, not any old water, exactly. It would be living water for purification. Good. Is there any sort of... There might be a connection. Is there a connection there, do you think? Living water? And wine and using, you know, renewing the use of these ceremonial things. You think, I don't know, I, 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 there might be something going on here. Yeah, remember, these are signs. This is a sign. And, and of course, that's what, we, what we're hearing and what we're seeing, that taking what is this, this old system used for purification and now something refreshing. People, people thought in messianic terms, too, of this would be a time of abundant flowing wine. And there's so much going on here. This also has overtones of, of the ultimate marriage feast. See what I mean? There's, there's so much that sort, of, that sort of resonates in this story. So he takes, they fill up these firkins um, with, and, and he tells them fill them with water to the brim. That's a detail that we're given. There's nothing else there. No room. It's just, so they're filled up. And then he tells them very subtly, just draw out some and take it to, take it to the master of the, of the banquet. Uh, take, take it to the head waiter. Some of your Bibles will have some other term there. It's actually a very specific term. Um, it has to do with a couch, actually. Uh, Archi, ruler, okay? And it's uh, triklinos, and that was the term for those couches, those low couches that would be set in threes around a table. So sort of the master of the couch. So think of him as sort of the head caterer. It's a position of honor, and he's not the bridegroom. He could be a family friend. He could be someone who's been appointed, but their job was to make sure all this ran smoothly. Could have been, might have been the best man. There's speculation Nathaniel might have been the best man, but that's just people playing with because we don't know. Well, they take it to him. And, and lo and behold, it's wine. And not just any wine. It's wine that shocks him. And it shocks him because normally, as we hear him say, and this is supposed to be a little bit humorous, that they would save, you know, they'd serve the good stuff first just to get it out there. And it's not because people were necessarily drunk, but because eventually, though, you know, the, the you know, having the feast and doing that, eventually, you know, your taste is not going to be as, you know, uh, sensitive. sensitive, if you want to put it that way. Sensitive is a good word. And you have saved the best till now. Imagine what that wine was like. Ah. Um, it was a famous Latin poem translated as the water saw its God and blushed, <laughs> which, you know, you get the idea, it's, but it's, that's beautiful as far as just poetry goes. And here we have this turned into the best, the choicest wine. What a gift. What a surprising gift. What a, what a sumptuous gift in this overflow of what was expected. And of course, that's part of the sign in that we have this overflow, this sumptuousness of God's, what God is going to do through Jesus and this new covenant, through new Israel, this overflow 
and of course all of the associations of wine that go with it. Again, not here just to meet our needs or to make us happy, although that's not bad. There's so much more that he came for. And that's why we're told that John helps us to understand that this is the first of those signs that he did in Cana. There's another coming later that manifested his glory. That points, notice it's all pointing to him. It's not just the thing that happened. The sign points to him. And in what ways they can, at that point, his disciples believe. And it's at this point, just those four or five who are with him. And we're not told about the rest of the wedding guests or what, how they react or how much this went out, how, what was Mary's reaction. But with them doing exactly what he, she, her son said to do, we see this amazing transformation. And that's the first of those signs. When I do a wedding, I, I do, um, I, I pretty much take the traditional Western Anglican wedding, the Book of Common Prayer, and I just tweak it a little bit because it's more familiar with folks and it's got some beautiful wording in it. And in that is, in the preamble to the wedding, it talks about, and I'll bring this up at every wedding, that, that Jesus that Jesus came to this wedding. In other words, that this is a noble estate that, that was witnessed by and beatified by the presence of Jesus at this wedding. So we have also this sort of nobility of, of, of marriage as well, where this first took place. And then we're told briefly that they went on to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is going to be a base of operations. And we're told as well that he went with his mother, Notice Joseph's not there again. We're not told about Joseph, hence the speculation that perhaps he's no longer around. And his brothers and his disciples. His brothers. That causes um, some of our Roman Catholic brethren a little bit of pause. Uh, and there's two explanations. Remember, they, they espouse the perpetual virginity of Mary. And if that is the case then they have to do something with verses like this. And there's two that they will speculate. One is that these are children of Joseph, half-brothers of Jesus, before he married Mary, or that they are cousins. But there is a word in Greek for cousins, and that's not the word. Uh, it's, it's brother. But just know that it's driven by a particular theology. Very early, by the way, this was very early in the church where there was a lot of folks who were espousing the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, but we're even given names. You know, we know James is one of his brothers, half-brother. Yes? Um, uh, sometime back you were talking about um, early church art. They uh, put halos around uh, the saints so we'd know who they were and wings on angels so we'd know who they were. Um, a lot of early church art pictures Joseph, very elderly. Uh, Mary's young, mm -hmm. but here's this old man she's married to. And I speculate that that was to show that Joseph wasn't going to be having carnal knowledge of this sweet, young, eternal virgin. 
and to shore up the idea that there were no full brothers mm -hmm. of Jesus. Interesting. No other right. Mm -hmm. Of that union. Hmm. I'd not really heard of or any of that, or, or speculate <laughs> too that he's not going to be around long. <laughs> All right. What other? Yes, sir. And I'm then struck we'll go. How John, oh, no, no, you can go first, then we'll go back. Okay, I'm, I'm struck by how John uses a composite lesson here by words from Mary and words from the Grand Sommelier. So Mary says, Listen to Jesus. And the Grand Sommelier, the, the banquet master, says, And you save the best for last from listening to Jesus. And I'm just struck about that's that's the lesson we should remember. If you listen to Jesus, you'll get the best. You get the best at the end. Yeah, interesting. Yes, sir. Um, one of my least favorite um, courses in college, one I had a hard time in, was organic chemistry. And um, organic chemistry basically... You still like carbon? Is that your problem? <laughs> Right. Um, so this sign is a sign that that Jesus is over nature because he can change nothing to life, mm -hmm. and he's also over time because wine is the product of a process that requires a lot of time to go to get to the fermentation and the final quality of the wine that you have, and he does it. This is a miracle that shows that Jesus is the Lord of time and the Lord of nature. Very good. And you're following Augustine and Lewis in that, by the way. Yeah. That both bring up, the, especially the time aspect. That, you know, we see water turn to wine all the time. As I say, I wasn't that smart in organic chemistry. No, man, you got it. Yeah, that's great. No, that's exactly right. Yes, ma'am. Oh, your hand? Oh, I thought your hand was up earlier. Peripheral vision. Well, you got to be careful. Well, go for it. So to me, that's kind of the irony when he says, my time has not yet come, but he must have given her some sign, something in his face, some signal mm -hmm. that she would go on and say, do whatever he says. Right. So there's no way you can push Jesus into using the wrong timing. Right. Yeah, I think it's a harsh translation. Well, paraphrase, yes. Right. He would never talk to his mother like that. Yes, ma'am. We have many other incidences, though, following where his 
one act of kindness that wasn't in the plan for the day. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it came before him and he mm -hmm. reacted. Anything else? So today, with your meal, have a good wine. <laughs> yes, yeah, and yeah, start with the cheap stuff. Um, yeah, um, it, is, it is interesting, obviously, you know, we, we're never to abuse. Uh, I mean, we can always abuse, you know, abuse wine. We're never to abuse it, but it's, it is interesting that there are whole traditions that that want to just jettison the whole the whole thing, uh, and thus jettison some of the richest imagery in all of Scripture. Once you get rid of of wine being really wine, a lot of that goes away, which is kind of intriguing. That's the reason I left the Southern Baptist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 that's not it. It'd be a good one, though. Yeah. <laughs> what? That's right. Mm -hmm. where, where do Baptists not recognize each other? Liquor, liquor store, right. Yeah, the, the bar, right. Why do you never take a Baptist fishing with you? He'll drink all your beer. <laughs> you know, so, anyway, there's a lot of jokes like that. Yeah. So, anyway, you get the idea. Let's pray. <laughs> Thanks, Father, for the richness of your word, the richness of, of what we were able to discover and talk about and learn about this morning. Pray that, uh, that we're not embarrassed, that we read of these sumptuous fulfillments of your promise and that they're miraculous. Pray that uh, we would not, not only not be embarrassed, but be champions of, of your activity in this world. Pray this week that uh, that we would do as Mary said, uh, and do as he says, do what he tells us to do. And when we do that, we know transformation comes. We're going to look forward to that. In the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.